This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Three Short Works by Gustave Flaubert The Legend of St. Julian the Hospitaller Chapter 2 The Crime he joined a horde of adventurers who were passing through the place. He learned what it was to suffer hunger, thirst, sickness, and filth. He grew accustomed to the din of battles and to the sight of dying men. The wind tanned his skin. His limbs became hardened through contact with armor. And as he was very strong and brave, temperate and of good counsel, he easily obtained command of a company. At the outset of a battle, he would electrify his soldiers by a motion of his sword. He would climb the walls of a citadel with a knotted rope at night, rocked by a storm, while sparks of fire clung to his cuirass, and molten lead and boiling tar poured from the battlements. Often a stone would break his shield, Bridges crowded with men gave way under him. Once, by turning his mace, he rid himself of fourteen horsemen. He defeated all those who came forward to fight him on the field of honour, and more than a score of times it was believed that he had been killed. However, thanks to divine protection, he always escaped, for he shielded orphans, widows, and aged men. When he caught sight of one of the latter walking ahead of him, he would call to him to show his face, as if he feared that he might kill him by mistake. All sorts of intrepid men gathered under his leadership, fugitive slaves, peasant rebels, and penniless bastards. He then organized an army which increased so much that he became famous and was in great demand. He succoured in turn the Dauphin of France, the King of England, the Templars of Jerusalem, the General of the Paths, the Negus of Abyssinia, and the Emperor of Calicut. He fought against Scandinavians covered with fish scales, against Negroes mounted on red asses and armed with shields made of hippopotamus hide, against gold-coloured Indians who wielded great shining swords above their heads. He conquered the troglodytes and the cannibals. He travelled through regions so torrid that the heat of the sun would set fire to the hair on one's head. He journeyed through countries so glacial that one's arms would fall from the body. And he passed through places where the fogs were so dense that it seemed like being surrounded by phantoms. Republics in trouble consulted him. When he conferred with ambassadors, he always obtained unexpected concessions. Also, if a monarch behaved badly, he would arrive on the scene and rebuke him. He freed nations. He rescued queens sequestered in towers. It was he, and no other, that killed the serpent of Milan and the dragon of Oberbierbach. Now the emperor of Occitania, having triumphed over the Spanish Mussulmans, 
had taken the sister of the Caliph of Cordova as a concubine, and had had one daughter by her, whom he brought up in the teachings of Christ. But the Caliph, feigning that he wished to become converted, made him a visit, and brought with him a numerous escort. He slaughtered the entire garrison, and threw the emperor into a dungeon, and treated him with great cruelty in order to obtain possession of his treasures. Julian went to his assistance, destroyed the army of infidels, laid siege to the city, slew the caliph, chopped off his head, and threw it over the fortifications like a cannonball. As a reward for so great a service, the emperor presented him with a large sum of money in baskets, but Julian declined it. Then the emperor, thinking that the amount was not sufficiently large, offered him three quarters of his fortune, and on meeting a second refusal, proposed to share his kingdom with his benefactor. But Julian only thanked him for it, and the emperor felt like weeping with vexation at not being able to show his gratitude, when he suddenly tapped his forehead and whispered a few words in the ear of one of his courtiers, the tapestry curtains parted, and a young girl appeared. Her large black eyes shone like two soft lights. A charming smile parted her lips. Her curls were caught in the jewels of her half-opened bodice, and the grace of her youthful body could be divined under the transparency of her tunic. She was small and quite plump, but her waist was slender. Julian was absolutely dazzled, all the more since he had always led a chaste life. So he married the emperor's daughter, and received at the same time a castle she had inherited from her mother. And when the rejoicings were over, he departed with his bride, after many courtesies had been exchanged on both sides. The castle was of Moorish design, in white marble, erected on a promontory, and surrounded by orange trees. Terraces of flowers extended to the shell-strewn shores of a beautiful bay. Behind the castle spread a fan-shaped forest. The sky was always blue, and the trees were swayed in turn by the ocean breeze and by the winds that blew from the mountains that closed the horizon. Light entered the apartments through the incrustations of the walls, High reed-like columns supported the ceiling of the cupolas, decorated in imitation of stalactites. Fountains played in the spacious halls. The courts were inlaid with mosaic. There were festooned partitions and a great profusion of architectural fancies, and everywhere reigned a silence so deep that the swish of a sash or the echo of a sigh could be distinctly heard. Julian now had renounced war. Surrounded by a peaceful people, he remained idle, receiving every day a throng of subjects who came and knelt before him and kissed his hands in oriental fashion. Clad in sumptuous garments, he would gaze out of the window and think of his past exploits and wish that he might again run in the desert in pursuit of ostriches and gazelles hide among the bamboos to watch for leopards, 
ride through forests filled with rhinoceroses, climb the most inaccessible peaks in order to have a better aim at the eagles, and fight the polar bears on the icebergs of the northern sea. Sometimes in his dreams he fancied himself like Adam in the midst of paradise, surrounded by all the beasts. By merely extending his arm he was able to kill them, or else they filed past him in pairs, by order of size, from the lions and the elephants to the ermines and the ducks, as on the day they entered Noah's ark. Hidden in the shadow of a cave, he aimed unerring arrows at them. Then came others and still others, until he awoke, wild-eyed. Princes, friends of his, invited him to their meets, but he always refused their invitations because he thought that by this kind of penance he might possibly avert the threatened misfortune. It seemed to him that the fate of his parents depended on his refusal to slaughter animals. He suffered because he could not see them, and his other desire was growing well-nigh unbearable. In order to divert his mind, his wife had dancers and jugglers come to the castle, she went abroad with him in an open litter. At other times, stretched out on the edge of a boat, they watched for hours the fish disport themselves in the water, which was as clear as the sky. Often she playfully threw flowers at him, or nestled at his feet. She played melodies on an old mandolin. Then, clasping her hands on his shoulder, she would inquire tremulously, what troubles thee, my dear Lord? He would not reply, or else he would burst into tears. But at last, one day, he confessed his fearful dread. His wife scorned the idea and reasoned wisely with him. Probably his father and mother were dead, and even if he should ever see them again, through what chance, to what end, would he arrive at this abomination? Therefore, his fears were groundless, and he should hunt again. Julian listened to her and smiled, but he could not bring himself to yield to his desire. One August evening, when they were in their bedchamber, she having just retired, and he being about to kneel in prayer, he heard the yelping of a fox and light footsteps under the window, and he thought he saw things in the dark that looked like animals, the temptation was too strong. He seized his quiver. His wife appeared astonished. I am obeying you, quoth he, and I shall be back at sunrise. However, she feared that some calamity would happen. But he reassured her and departed, surprised at her illogical moods. A short time afterwards, a page came to announce that two strangers desired in the absence of the lord of the castle, to see its mistress at once. Soon a stooping old man and an aged woman entered the room. Their coarse garments were covered with dust, and each leaned on a stick. They grew bold enough to say that they brought Julian news of his parents. She leaned out of the bed to listen to them, but after glancing at each other, the old people asked her whether he ever referred to them, and if he still loved them. Oh, yes, she said. 
Then they exclaimed, We are his parents! And they sat themselves down, for they were very tired. But there was nothing to show the young wife that her husband was their son. They proved it by describing to her the birthmarks he had on his body. Then she jumped out of bed, called a page, and ordered that a repast be served to them. But although they were very hungry, they could scarcely eat, and she observed surreptitiously how their lean fingers trembled whenever they lifted their cups. They asked a hundred questions about their son, and she answered each one of them, but she was careful not to refer to the terrible idea that concerned them. When he failed to return, they had left their chateau, and had wandered for several years, following vague indications, but without losing hope. So much money had been spent at the tolls of the rivers and in inns, to satisfy the rights of princes and the demands of highwaymen, that now their purse was quite empty, and they were obliged to beg. But what did it matter, since they were about to clasp again their son in their arms? They lauded his happiness in having such a beautiful wife, and did not tire of looking at her and kissing her. The luxuriousness of the apartment astonished them, and the old man, after examining the walls, inquired why they bore the coat of arms of the Emperor of Occitania. "'He is my father,' she replied. And he marvelled and remembered the prediction of the gypsy, while his wife meditated upon the words the hermit had spoken to her. The glory of their son was undoubtedly only the dawn of eternal splendours, and the old people remained awed while the light from the candelabra on the table fell on them. In the heyday of youth, both had been extremely handsome. The mother had not lost her hair, and bands of snowy whiteness framed her cheeks, and the father, with his stalwart figure and strong beard, looked like a carved image. Julian's wife prevailed upon them not to wait for him. She put them in her bed and closed the curtains, and they both fell asleep. The day broke, and outdoors the little birds began to chirp. Meanwhile, Julian had left the castle grounds and walked nervously through the forest, enjoying the velvety softness of the grass and the barminess of the air. The shadow of the trees fell on the earth. Here and there the moonlight flecked the glades, and Julian feared to advance because he mistook the silvery light for water and the tranquil surface of the pools for grass. A great stillness reigned everywhere, and he failed to see any of the beasts that only a moment ago were prowling around the castle. As he walked on, the woods grew thicker, and the darkness more impenetrable. Warm winds, filled with enervating perfumes, caressed him. He sank into masses of dead leaves, and after a while he leaned against an oak tree to rest and catch his breath. Suddenly, a body blacker than the surrounding darkness sprang from behind a tree. It was a wild boar. Julian did not have time to stretch his bow, and he bewailed the fact as if it were some great misfortune. Presently, having left the woods, he beheld a wolf slinking along a hedge. He aimed an arrow at him, 
the wolf paused, turned his head, and quietly continued on his way. He trotted along, always keeping at the same distance, pausing now and then to look around, and resuming his flight as soon as an arrow was aimed in his direction. In this way, Julian traversed an apparently endless plain, then sand hills, and at last found himself on a plateau that dominated a great stretch of land. Large flat stones were interspersed among crumbling vaults. Bones and skeletons covered the ground, and here and there some mouldy crosses stood desolate. But presently shapes moved in the darkness of the tombs, and from them came panting, wild-eyed hyenas. They approached him and smelled him, grinning hideously and disclosing their gums. He whipped out his sword, but they scattered in every direction, and continuing their swift, limping gallop, disappeared in a cloud of dust. Sometime afterwards, in a ravine, he encountered a wild bull, with threatening horns, pawing the sand with his hooves. Julian thrust his lance between his dewlaps, but his weapon snapped as if the beast were made of bronze. Then he closed his eyes in anticipation of his death. When he opened them again, the bull had vanished. Then his soul collapsed with shame. Some supernatural power destroyed his strength, and he set out for home through the forest. The woods were a tangle of creeping plants that he had to cut with his sword, and while he was thus engaged, a weasel slid between his feet, a panther jumped over his shoulder, and a serpent wound itself around the ash-tree. Among its leaves was a monstrous jackdaw that watched Julian intently, and here and there, between the branches, appeared great fiery sparks, as if the sky were raining all its stars upon the forest. But the sparks were the eyes of wild cats, owls, squirrels, monkeys, and parrots. Julian aimed his arrows at them, but the feathered weapons lighted on the leaves of the trees and looked like white butterflies. He threw stones at them, but the missiles did not strike, and fell to the ground. Then he cursed himself and howled imprecations, and in his rage he could have struck himself. Then all the beasts he had pursued appeared, and formed a narrow circle around him. Some sat on their hindquarters, while others stood at full height, and Julian remained among them, transfixed with terror and absolutely unable to move. By a supreme effort of his willpower, he took a step forward. Those that perched in the trees opened their wings, those that trod the earth moved their limbs, and all accompanied him. The hyenas strode in front of him, the wolf and the wild boar brought up the rear. On his right, the bull swung its head, and on his left, the serpent crawled through the grass, while the panther, arching its back, advanced with velvety footfalls and long strides. Julian walked as slowly as possible, so as not to irritate them, while in the depths of bushes he could distinguish porcupines, foxes, vipers, jackals, and bears. He began to run. The brutes followed him, 
The serpent hissed, the malodorous beasts frothed at the mouth, the wild boar rubbed his tusks against his heels, and the wolf scratched the palms of his hands with the hairs of his snout. The monkeys pinched him and made faces, the weasel tolled over his feet, a bear knocked his cap off with its huge paw, and the panther disdainfully dropped an arrow it was about to put in its mouth. Irony seemed to incite their sly actions. As they watched him out of the corners of their eyes, they seemed to meditate a plan of revenge, and Julian, who was deafened by the buzzing of the insects, bruised by the wings and tails of the birds, choked by the stench of animal breaths, walked with outstretched arms and closed lids like a blind man, without even the strength to beg for mercy. The crowing of a cock vibrated in the air. Other cocks responded. It was day, and Julian recognized the top of his palace rising above the orange trees. Then, on the edge of a field, he beheld some red partridges fluttering around a stubble field. He unfastened his cloak and threw it over them like a net. When he lifted it, he found only a bird that had been dead a long time and was decaying. This disappointment irritated him more than all the others. The thirst for carnage stirred afresh within him. Animals failing him, he desired to slaughter men. He climbed the three terraces and opened the door with a blow of his fist. But at the foot of the staircase, the memory of his beloved wife softened his heart. No doubt she was asleep, and he would go up and surprise her. Having removed his sandals, he unlocked the door softly and entered. The stained windows dimmed the pale light of dawn. Julian stumbled over some garments lying on the floor, and a little further on he knocked against a table covered with dishes. She must have eaten, he thought, so he advanced cautiously towards the bed, which was concealed by the darkness in the back of the room. When he reached the edge, he leaned over the pillow, where the two heads were resting close together, and stooped to kiss his wife. His mouth encountered a man's beard. He fell back, thinking he'd become crazed. Then he approached the bed again, and his searching fingers discovered some hair which seemed to be very long. In order to convince himself that he was mistaken, he once more passed his hand slowly over the pillow. But this time he was sure that it was a beard, and that a man was there, a man lying beside his wife. Flying into an ungovernable passion, he sprang upon them with his drawn dagger, foaming, stamping, and howling like a wild beast. After a while, he stopped. The corpses, pierced through the heart, had not even moved. He listened attentively to the two death-rattles. They were almost alike, and as they grew fainter, another voice coming from far away seemed to continue them. Uncertain at first, this plaintive voice came nearer and nearer, grew louder and louder, and presently he recognized, with a feeling of abject terror, the bellowing of the great black stag. And as he turned, he thought he saw the spectre of his wife standing at the threshold with a light in her hand. 
the sound of the murder had aroused her. In one glance she understood what had happened and fled in horror, letting the candle drop from her hand. Julian picked it up. His father and mother lay before him, stretched on their backs, with gaping wounds in their breasts, and their faces, the expression of which was full of tender dignity, seemed to hide what might be an eternal secret. Splashes and blotches of blood were on their white skin, on the bedclothes, on the floor, and on an ivory Christ which hung in the alcove. The scarlet reflection of the stained window, which just then was struck by the sun, lighted up the bloody spots and appeared to scatter them around the whole room. Julian walked towards the corpses, repeating to himself and trying to believe that he was mistaken, that it was not possible, that there are often inexplicable likenesses. At last he bent over to look closely at the old man, and he saw, between the half-closed lids, a dead pupil that scorched him like fire. Then he went over to the other side of the bed where the other corpse lay, but the face was partly hidden by bands of white hair. Julian slipped his finger beneath them and raised the head, holding it at arm's length to study its features, while, with his other hand, he lifted the torch. Drops of blood oozed from the mattress and fell one by one upon the floor. At the close of the day, he appeared before his wife, and in a changed voice commanded her first not to answer him, not to approach him, not even to look at him, and to obey, under the penalty of eternal damnation, every one of his orders, which were irrevocable. The funeral was to be held in accordance with the written instructions he had left on a chair in the death chamber. He left her his castle, his vassals, all his worldly goods, without keeping even his clothes or his sandals, which would be found at the top of the stairs. She had obeyed the will of God in bringing about his crime, and accordingly she must pray for his soul, since henceforth he should cease to exist. The dead were buried sumptuously in the chapel of a monastery, which it took three days to reach from the castle. A monk wearing a hood that covered his head followed the procession alone, for nobody dared to speak to him. And during the mass he lay flat on the floor with his face downward and his arms stretched out at his sides. After the burial he was seen to take to the road leading into the mountains. He looked back several times and finally passed out of sight. End of chapter 2